You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Good morning to everybody. Great to see everybody here today. So glad you made being at church a priority. Just a little bit of a window uh, of announcement. Pastor Lisa and I will be gone the next couple of weeks. And so Pastor Ben will be filling in next Sunday. So if you send us a text or an email, we probably will be extremely slow, if, if not just totally unresponsive. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary. So, yeah. So her and I have a joke, I don't, you know, sometimes you don't know how jokes are going to work when you tell them publicly, but her and I say, 40 years, I've spent 38 of my happiest years with you. Because we always say there's been a week or two here and there that hasn't been so hot, and when you put it all together, it's been about two years. How many married couples can say amen to that? Yeah, so, you know, you just work through stuff. But anyway, yeah, we'll be gone. Uh, we'll, we'll be in the south region of the hemisphere. I checked today. It is 84 degrees. So uh, I'll be thinking of you ever so briefly. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, we're going to continue with the series today, the Gospel of Matthew, following Jesus in the midst of chaos. And I started, uh, I actually did a message last week on the temptations of Jesus. And I took it from a different avenue. And so today we're going to be approaching it from what most people would say it is approached. And it's based on the actual temptations themselves. And so we're going to do that story again, but preaching a whole different message. So would everybody stand at this time, if you would, for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let's read this together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask for the wisdom and the insight that can come only from the Spirit. I pray that our minds are not only informed, I pray that our hearts are transformed. We're here to learn, to grow, to develop. We ask Jesus that as the words are said publicly with our, and heard with our ears, that we would also hear what the voice of the Spirit is saying 
to our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as I said, I shared on this same exact uh, scripture passage last week, and I want to do it from another angle uh, today. And so I want to set up a few things. I always like this favorite phrase of mine, text without context leads to pretext. I, I do that frequently, not because I think if you regularly attend the bridge, you forget. I don't think that at all. I do that so that new people can understand the approach that is taken to Scripture when I speak, that I'm looking at, first of all, the context and trying to at least get our minds into the context so that when these passages of Scripture that we study are preached on, that you can go, okay, so that's how the people in that context would have heard this and they would have received it. So let me set this up again. The, the book of Matthew addresses Jewish people who are in, who have not only come through catastrophic events, there is more yet to come. They don't know it, but there's actually more catastrophic events on the horizon. 64 AD, Rome was burnt, the, the city was burned to the ground, and the Christians were blamed. And so by this time, thousands upon thousands of Christians have been slaughtered. It is still happening. And then on top of that, Jerusalem was, was sacked by General Titus of the Roman army. It was during the Passover season, so well over a million Jews were killed. Many of them were able to flee for their lives, some others, and then the rest were taken into captivity. So it was literally just a bloodbath. It was horrible. And so these people are devastated. And what they don't know is it's going to get worse because nine years later, Pompeii, one of the port cities on the Mediterranean, was going to be totally destroyed by the eruption of a volcano. So you can see in about a 15-year period, it was just one thing after another. And so I want us to understand why Matthew put these stories in his gospel. What does it have to say to those people? And so when you come to the story of Jesus' temptations is what the stories often refer to, what do the temptations of Jesus after fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness have to do with the catastrophic events around 70 AD? You can think, I can think of a lot of stories, angles that they probably need encouragement, but you're looking at the story going, I don't know why they would ever need to know about the temptations of Jesus. What has that got to do with the catastrophic events that have happened and still are unfolding? And the other part was this, many of these folks reading this weren't followers of Jesus yet. Matthew wrote his gospel to appeal to Jewish people who were resistant to even considering that Jesus could be the Son of God. Now I say that, let's set our minds that way so that we can begin to study the scripture and you go, oh, now I understood why that was said. Now I know why it was put in this way. I know now why it was phrased this way. So last week I shared the message on spiritual realities relating to physical reality. In this story we have angels. We have uh, Satan himself appearing. And we looked all through the Gospel of Matthew, the various references to the Holy Spirit, demonic spirits, uh, uh, angels, and all these various manifestations. And so now we're looking at this story again from this lens. And it's often referred to, as I said, the temptations of Jesus. And here's a quick quiz. How many temptations were there? Three, right? What if I told you you're wrong? You say, well, you better be preaching from the Bible, brother. <laughs> Hang on. I just want to show you this to you. There's actually four. And I'm going to show it to you here in just a second. You ready? Okay, this is like where you respond. Yes. 
All right, here we go. But here's one more angle to, to process this, okay? In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, each record the story of Jesus' temptation. Some use more words than the other one, but they all make reference to it, okay? What is interesting about Jesus' story is this. Note there were no witnesses mentioned in any of the gospel to Jesus' temptations. That does not mean that I am saying that it didn't happen. I'm just telling you, every story has, there were people present, the crowd saw, he was in a house, the residents saw. You ever notice there's no, there's, there's no reference to any witnesses on this? It's just Jesus in the wilderness with the devil, right? And so this appears to be an event that Jesus told, at a minimum, his disciples. We never really get told in the context that it was actually preached. It doesn't really say that. You could, you could make a case that it might have been, but the way the story is told, it sounds like it was told in a private setting with his disciples, okay? But it never says this was something that was communicated to the masses. And, I, and again, I'm not discrediting the story, because... I think what Jesus is doing is showing his disciples, let me tell you the private battle that a leader has in trying to follow God. And I would say this, most of you have had private battles in your life that nobody was aware of, but you had a real struggle. And it was a real battle, and it was, it was, it was real to you. And then maybe later on, there was an opportunity to tell your story. But listen, everybody in this room at some time has fought a private battle that nobody else was aware that you were battling. That's right. And then maybe later on, you pulled back the curtain and said, let me tell you what was going on in my life. Let me tell you about a season that I had in my life. And I think this is one of those instances of Jesus, you know, that he was, he was revealing, to him, revealing to his disciples, you see what I am, but let me tell you based on who I am, the battles I have to fight. And he goes on to say, Satan himself showed up. He, not a demonic force, Satan showed up, and this is what happened as we had a spiritual conflict between himself and myself. This is what happened, and it's a great learning experience for us. So, another progress is this. Now, I said I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. I said there's four temptations, but here I'm going to list three. Okay, you ready? Yes. Can pastors contradict themselves? <laughs> here we go. The first temptation, okay, that we read about, suggested what Jesus should do for himself. Turn the stones into bread. You should do that. The second temptation had to do with what the Father ought to do for Jesus. You should jump off of this temple pinnacle and God himself should protect you from letting you be hurt. And then in the third instance, he says, he, he suggests what Satan might do for Jesus. How many know that's dangerous territory? If you will this, I will this. Hmm. So we're going to look at these, but like I said, we're actually going to see that there are four things that actually happen in the world of his temptation. So number one, let's everybody read it out loud. Resist Satan's temptation to question your God-given identity. I want you to know, twice, twice, Satan said this. If you are the son of God. Verse 6, if you are the Son of God. Notice that. The first thing that he goes after is Jesus' identity. 
if, if. He won't acknowledge. He's testing it. And what I want you to recognize is why is he doing that? Why is he challenging Jesus' identity? Because in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the last verse of that chapter, before you get into chapter 4, Jesus is baptized, and this is what happens. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, in whom, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So what happens at Jesus' baptism is that his identity is communicated, his identity by God is announced. This is my son. So what's the first thing the devil does if you're God's son? He goes after Jesus' identity immediately. What I want you to understand is this is nothing new that sometimes we're seeing with people who are struggling and having a battle. This is not a biological, this is not a physical battle. You need to understand you're having a spiritual battle just like Jesus had. The devil tried to get him to question who he was. And today we have people who are having forces brought upon them that make them question, did God make an error in how he created me? Is my identity being called into question? I want to say, man, don't take the bait. Don't do that. You don't understand. This is not something new. This is something that is being brought up that has happened over the age. Even Jesus was questioned if you are the Son of God. He was the Son of God. It had just been an, a voice from heaven. I don't know about you. That freaked me out. Right? I mean, you're just standing there and you hear a voice says, and then if somebody on the heels of that say, well, if you are the Son of God, I say, didn't you hear the voice? Are you crazy? But see, it's... It's, the, it's that, let's get, it, let's get you, it's baiting. Because here's what's going on. It is getting you to question God's craftsmanship and God's beauty that he has for you. I want you to see something. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created. Do you understand that you have been created in the image of God the way he created you? God created you. You, listen, that, when, when people begin to cause other people to have questions and try to manipulate people in this arena, you're going, so what you're saying is, God messed up. Wow. You're saying that God didn't have his artistry, his perfection, his handprint, his fingerprints on you. You're saying they were imperfect hands who had you. Look at this. Psalm 139, verse, 19, verse 14. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow. I, listen to me. You're wonderful the way God created you. Don't let anybody tell you that he didn't create you in a wonderful way. He created you wonderfully. You are artistry. You are beauty. God made you. Don't let the world take that from you. Don't let them con you out. And it says, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Okay? I want you to turn to the person on your left and right, and I want you to say this. You are wonderful the way God made you. 
Now, I want, I want, hey, now, listen to this. Did you hear the joy and the laughter in the room? You didn't have anybody break into tears? <laughs> no, no. No, did, did you notice that? Did you notice how good it feels to have people affirm that God made you wonderfully and that God made you fearfully and that you are great the way God created you. You don't need to undo the master's hands and get some cheap counterfeit going in your life. Amen? The first thing, the, that's why I say there's actually four temptations. The first thing he did was he attacked the identity of Jesus. And by the way, he did it twice. He said, if you are the Son of God, and Jesus gave a response. And so he brought it up again. If you are the Son of God, and he says, and let me just tell you, this is for some people, this is not a one-time victory. You're right. The enemy will come back, and he will bring it to you again and again and again and again. And I'm just telling you, don't go for the counterfeit. You remind him that, listen, God created me, and I was announced on the day I was born, I was announced, you have a boy or you have a girl. God, listen, use people in a room to announce the way he created you. Don't you let them take that voice from you. Number two, read it out loud. Resist. Resist Satan's temptation of entitled provision. So again, when you get into the context of what these people are experiencing, so they have nothing, right? And part of their disillusionment is God owes us. I mean, after all, we're the Jewish people. We're the faithful ones. How can God use a heathen nation like Rome to correct the Israel? How can that be? We're the holy ones, not them. So there's a sense of entitlement. So he brings this up. The tempter said to him, meaning Jesus, and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not, or not, uh, shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In essence, what the devil was telling Jesus was this. Satan was implying that Jesus' hunger was incompatible with who he was. You're the Son of God. How can God leave you hungry? He owns all this. Look where he has you. Everything that God has at his disposal and everything that you are, and God can't even spare a loaf of bread? I would tell you to turn that stone into bread and eat it. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by that alone. He also lives by the word of God. He begins to quote the word to counter the accusations and the in the injustice, see, Satan is trying, listen, Satan is trying to infect Jesus' spirit with an injustice. And let me tell you this, hear me, there's a difference between being awakened to an injustice that God wants to give you the passion to do something about, it's another thing that he infects you with it. Because now you start employing hatred and violence and all sorts of things that you should never engage in in order to, to bring about the change that you think needs to happen. And so he's trying to tell Jesus here, wow, if everything that you have, look what God's done to you. How many know the Jewish people were connecting on that one going, yeah, look what happened to us. 
the faithful. We had the house of God. We had the place where people could find God. And he lets a bunch of heathens come in here and wipe everything out. They had an entitlement process. Their mentality was, hey, you can burn Rome to the ground, but leave Jerusalem alone. That's the deal. They're heathen. We serve you. Why are you burning our city down? And he killed a way, way more Jews than he ever allowed Romans to die. Hey, we've all had injustices in our life where we sometimes have a process that gets a hold of us, and that process does this. Why can't God heal me? Why can't he? I don't understand that. I've been faithful. I'm good. I, I serve. I give. I it just seems inconceivable to me that God has all this power and here I am, I need a miracle and God's not letting it happen. See what happens is there, so now you're starting to get into the entitled world. I have paid my dues and now you owe me. People have that in their personal life. God, I've been faithful. Why do I have to be the one struggling? Why do I watch people who want nothing to do with God and they seem to be prospering and flourishing and here I am, I'm faithful, and every week I'm sweating it out trying to figure out how I'm going to make my bills work. I don't get this. It almost looks like to me sin pays better than righteousness. Can I tell you? It's entitlement. It's a poison. Because let me tell you as a Christian, let's put it in perspective. If you put everything that you did on one side of the scale, everything you ever did wrong, and everything you did right on the other side of the scale, I'm pretty sure we all know which way it would be tilting. Even Isaiah said our righteousness is like filthy rags. Let's be careful for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I'm not preaching legalism, but what I want you to be aware is that's why we have this thing called grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Because without it, we're all doomed. But my response to that grace, mercy, and forgiveness is I stop doing what I've been doing that required the grace, mercy, and forgiveness to begin with. That's my response, but there's no way that I now have a checkbook ledger where I can now show God what he owes me because that's a debt I can never pay back. Be careful about entitlement when it comes to your spirituality. I deserve better than this. What kind of God are you that lets this happen? God, what's going, it's, listen to me. There's that element, you, at some point, you just got to trust God with the events of your life in circumstances where you have no control. And listen, if you've lived any long, any, any length of time, everybody in this room knows what it's like to come into a, a junction in life where you have no control except who are you going to trust. Be careful to not let trust turn to entitlement. Amen? Number three, read it out loud. Resist Satan's temptation to twist scripture for personal agenda. So, Jesus quoted the scripture in that last temptation. So, what does the devil do? Well, since you're going to use the word, did you know the Bible? Or did you know the devil knows the Bible too? 
Here you go. If you are the son of God, notice that he just, he's still on it. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What's the context here? The context is to be careful about using your faith for a personal agenda rather than God's agenda. So let me give you a little bit of context. When it says he took him up to this, uh, it says that uh, when he took him up on this, this pinnacle, okay, what was happening there was this. There's a place next to the temple, it was called Herod's Palace, it's where Herod lived. His wall, his, one of his walls was one of the walls to where the courtyard of the temple. And he had built his palace high enough that he had a few plat patios outside that he could actually be up on the patios and look down on the temple and look inside. That really angered the Jews, okay? Because you had a bunch of Gentiles who had elevated themselves higher than God's, God's structure, and they were seen as trying to posture themselves as being higher, more powerful. Well, Herod had done it just for the simple reason. He said, if there's ever a rebellion, it's going to start there. So I wanted the ability to sit in my palace and be able to observe when something's developing so I can have rapid response. So the pinnacle of the temple was right close to Herod's palace. So if, according to scripture, this is where Satan took Jesus up top. Now they estimate this place would have been about 140, 180 feet up. So you can see it's a pretty tall air arena. And what he was saying was, if you cast yourself down, the word says that God will protect you. Now in this particular environment, given the fact that it's where it is, you have Ro the Roman palace for Herod and the, and the temple area if Jesus would have done that, both sides would have seen this happening. It would have turned into a show. And so Satan is trying to get Jesus to kick off his ministry with something that, that God said, this is not how we launch you. This is not how we're going to do this. So don't do that. But Satan was baiting Jesus to get him to do something in the world of sensationalism. In other words... Here's a great way to use following God to make yourself famous. And Jesus didn't come to be famous. He came to, be, he came to serve. Personal agenda. Yeah, my faith can make me famous. That's not what the faith is for. Faith was never designed to make you famous. Faith was designed to make you a servant. Faith can get me the stuff that I would never be able to get. Otherwise. So we come up with a laundry list of items and things that we want uh, the, the God to do for it. No, this is not about God serving you. This is about you serving God. It, if you go, to, you go to how Jesus prayed, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're not careful, you'll do nothing but give God your will in prayer. Here's my list. Let me give you my will. We always act like we've got the ideas, God's got the power, we just need to get the two together. God says, no, this is not about your personal agenda. This is about you becoming a servant to serve the kingdom's agenda. I got to tell you a little historical, add a, a little aspect about this. So where Jesus was taken up on this, this pinnacle, history records this story. James, who wrote the book of James, that was not the apostle James that followed Jesus. 
The one who wrote the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was voted to be the head of the church while the other disciples went out and evangelized. So it was actually Jesus' half-brother who oversaw the early church first, okay? This is where historians best say that J James was executed, that he was taken up on the pinnacle, and that he was cast down to his death. Now, I've got to give you this. So Jesus is being tempted to cast himself down in a sensational fashion and have God protect him. And then a mere 30 to 40 years later, his half-brother will be thrown off of that same pinnacle and God will not rescue him. He will die. Wow. I don't know if Jesus knew that, but how ironic that the enemy is determined to throw people over the edge. It's just what he does. He's determined. And, you know, James didn't renounce his faith, okay? He didn't turn away from God. He was faithful to the end. But just how ironic, this idea to use our faith for some kind of personal agenda. No. I want God to use my life for his agenda. And let's just, do, let's just live the life that he takes us on to the best of our ability. But let's be careful that, of why we are doing what we're doing. Amen? Amen? Number four, read this out loud. Resist Satan's temptation to realize God's purposes through disobedience. I will say this is the one that probably causes a little bit of confusion. I mean, you read it, and you go, okay, I think I basically know why Jesus responded the way he did. But without a little background, you don't really understand what's going on here. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. What I want you to see is this. Demonic forces have a way of showing people things. It doesn't mean that it's, that person is under their influence. But hey, people in this room, you've had nightmares. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen or should happen. It doesn't mean, but if we're not, we, we can get exposed at times and sometimes the enemy will, will attack us in our brains, in our minds, in our spirits. And we have to recognize when that's happened. It doesn't mean I backslid. It doesn't mean I've fallen away. I just have to recognize that the battle has entered a different arena in my life. And so he shows Jesus, the, mag, the magnitude of the kingdom. He says, all this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here's the backdrop of this. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know that all this kingdom stuff is going to come under the authority of Jesus anyway. Right? Satan was providing Jesus a shortcut. There's no reason for you to do what you came to do. There's no reason for you to go through everything that you're going to go through. There's, there's, listen, there's, there, there's no reason for this, this whole thing. So let me just make it easy for you. I know you're going to get all this. So I'll just make it easy. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you. What was Jesus' response? Away from me. 
He knew what was going. What he was trying to do was get Jesus to compromise the mission and the purpose with which God has sent him to do. And what happens many times in our lives is this. We think that if we take shortcuts, we might be able to help the kingdom of God out. God never needs you to disobey in one arena in order to help him out in another arena. The Bible is full of examples of people who thought, let me help God out. He seems to be a little slow. Abraham and Sarah were told they were going to have a child 15 years later. They don't have a kid and they're getting old. You know, when you're in your mid-80s, it's just hard to start believing God for a child. (laughs) And so Abraham, with Sarah's approval and encouragement, in fact, she's the one who came up with the idea, got got her husband to sleep with her handmaiden, and he had a child named Ishmael. And God says, That's not what I intended to happen. I don't need that help. And so conflict hit the house. Hagar, Ishmael had to leave because of the conflict. And yes, Abraham and Sarah finally did have a child, okay? They finally were able to have their child. But the point being was it created unintended consequences. Why? Because they fought disobedience could help God out in his other arenas where he just didn't seem to be doing well. We see this with Samuel as he was relating to Saul. One particular event, Saul was told, wait till Samuel arrives. Do not offer sacrifices. Do not do these things. Stay put. And Samuel was late. Saul had everybody there. Everything is set, ready to go. It's time to launch the service. Samuel's not there. Nobody knows where his plane got delayed. No communications whatsoever. And so Saul thought, I can step in as king and do prophet ministry. And he did, and then Samuel showed up and called him out and said, what did you do? He said, well, you got to understand, man. There was this, he said, uh-uh. I... You don't help God out by disobeying. If God's late, that's on him. But don't disobey because you think that's the only way you can help God. Listen, so many times the temptations we get is to, we want to accelerate a process that is very important to us. And we have all the great reasons in our mind. And the only reason we can come up with not to do it is, but I know God told me no, but maybe I misunderstood him. I've asked, I said, did you, are you sure God said no? Yeah. I said, then I'd stand by that. I'd stand by it. Don't, don't do something. You might solve this and then create a wave of unintended consequences. I don't even want to fathom what could have happened if Jesus would have knelt. I don't even want to think what the world would be like. I don't even want to think where you and I would have been. I don't know what the unintended consequences would have been. I don't even want to know what they are. But listen, obey God. When you don't know what else to do, trust him and obey. And everybody said amen? amen. And here's the last point. Here we go. Number five. 
Faithfulness to God's word and trust in God's way releases the supernatural. It's no, it's not by mistake that this is mentioned at the end of the story. It says he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Then it says he has a confrontation, a, an actual confrontation, not with, a demon, not with a demon, with Satan himself. And Jesus navigates these temptations, and when he comes out, it says, the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The scripture shows us that because he did what was, he was supposed to do, what was happening in the spiritual world translated into a physical reality for Jesus because it says angels came and attended him. The spiritual world became the provisional world in his world of reality. Why is that important to us? I know we get a, I think you can see the bridge is growing a lot. And so there's folks who are sometimes saying, what, what, hmm, what, what kind of church is this? Well, let me tell you what we are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what kind of church is this? You're in a church that still believes the activity of God is still happening. We don't study a historical God. We study a God who started in history, but he's still making history. We are a part of being in his historical moments. So we're not just studying the past. We're studying the present. You're in a place that we... I be, listen, let me just say, I believe that angels still attend people. When they come out of their darkest hours. And they've weathered some horrible storms in their life. Can I tell you, I believe there's angels that are assigned to you. To bring you strength, to bring you comfort, to bring you help. I believe that when you find yourself in a wilderness, there is a Holy Spirit that can go with you into the wilderness. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to walk there. Nobody wants to dwell there. Everybody would say, there's got to be an interstate around this. Nobody wants to walk a wilderness. It takes too long. You just want to blow through it. There's a Holy Spirit that goes with you. You're not by yourself. Yeah, you might have a spiritual battle that you're not accustomed to. There might be some things that are happening that you say, I could live without this, but can I tell you, you're not alone out there. You're not. If you will stay faithful to God's word, if you will trust in his ways, you will find that God has a supernatural release of provision and help on the way. On the way. When we pray for people, we do not pray as a courtesy. We don't pray to be nice. We pray because we actually believe. You may not see it. I'm not saying that we all may not even feel it. But when we pray, I think there are angels who are being sent right now to help that person. There is a Holy Spirit that is beginning to work in a person's life. I believe in the real reality of that stuff. That's the kind of church that you're at today. We're not just trying to be nice. We're trying to be transformative. We're trying to be helpful. We're trying to be inspiring.
We're trying to be different. And everybody said amen to that. Come on, let's stand across this place as we wrap the service up today, would you? And I want you to, hey, come on, we lift our hands. Can you just take a moment and praise him? Praise him for his activity that is available to us all right now. Come on, praise him right now.